It's episode 108 of the Keto for Women show. You're listening to the Keto for Women show. This podcast provides the tools you need to create your own expression of a healthy ketogenic lifestyle so you can stop obsessing and start living. I'm your host and nutritionist, Sean Miner. Now, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back. Thanks, as always, for joining me on this episode of Keto for Women. Today, we're talking about our fifth vital sign, the menstrual cycle. Yes, according to our guest today here on the Keto for Women show, we should be treating our menstrual cycle, the whole cycle, not just our periods, the entire cycle, month to month, day to day, as a vital sign of what we should be looking for in our health, what could be going right, what could be going wrong. We're getting into all of it today. We're also talking about the fertility awareness method, a way to track your fertility to have a baby or to use as a birth control method or as is the case with me, just to learn more about your health and to keep track of what's going on with you and your body. And if anything goes awry, you will know right away and can take control of that, find out the root cause and get healthy again. Let's dive right into this interview, shall we? This is Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach Approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. Let's hear a little bit from Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the Keto for Women show today. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Sean. This is going to be a really female-centric conversation as we have here on the Keto for Women show because we're going to talk all about our wonderful periods and everything that comes along with it. Lisa is an expert on the topic. So Lisa, why don't you start just giving everybody a little bit of an intro into who you are, where you came from, how you got here, and what you like to chat about. Yes. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And so, I mean, my story is a bit unique because I discovered the fertility awareness method when I was about 18 years old. So I was pretty young. I was freshly out of high school. I had been on the pill because of painful periods and heavy periods, and I was a really active teenager. So, you know, that was the only way I knew how to handle it at that time. But when I needed birth control, I found myself kind of in a conundrum. I had only ever used the pill for those other reasons. So I didn't take it at the same time. And I was always a nerd. So I read the insert and I knew, I just felt like I would always be a bit nervous if it was working. So I remember 
were thinking, okay, if I'm going to use birth control, I'm going to have to use condoms with the pill. And then I was like, well, I wasn't really sure about the pill. I had seen a lot of women in my family struggle with fertility issues. My mom had to have a hysterectomy in her early 40s because of fibroids. And a a number of women in my family had that issue as well. And being on the pill, every time I came off the pill, my period pain would come back. The heaviness of the period would come back. So even at a young age, I had this sense of the pill isn't actually fixing anything. It seems to be delaying the inevitable. Mm -hmm. I felt like there had to be another way. I felt like it wasn't normal to have that type of struggle with my period. And so it was right around this time of like, what am I going to do that I discovered fertility awareness? And so it changed everything for me. I learned that you're only fertile for a short window of time each cycle, which scientifically is about five days plus the day of ovulation. And from there, I mean, I used the method successfully in my 20s, which I like to share because I was pretty young, but I was able to figure it out. I also started teaching women to chart their cycles. And, you know, some women use it for birth control like I did. Some women use it to optimize their chances of conception. But the more you learn about the menstrual cycle and learn that your menstrual cycle in general is always reflecting back your overall health to you. So that started me on my journey. And now where I'm at now, I just, you know, released the final sign. I have a podcast that's been going for about five years. So I'm still there. I'm still in that place of really sharing this information and knowledge with women. Because although I've been able to take this information for granted for almost 20 years, your average woman still has no idea how her menstrual cycle works. Yeah, it's so true. And when you just learn even a little bit about what your cycle means and what it's doing on a day-to-day basis every month, it's like the most fascinating thing. And you really kind of start looking forward to your period and start looking forward to kind of tracking what's going on with you on a day-to-day basis. And it becomes this like fascination or just a a newfound sense of your body almost because you have this information that you for years and years never knew about. So let's get into some of that information. You call our menstrual cycle a vital sign. So why do you say it's that important for us? Well, I say it's a vital sign because when you actually track and pay attention to your cycle, it doesn't take long before you recognize that your cycle is literally always reflecting your health back to you. So when we talk about vital signs, I mean, a vital sign is a a bodily response that we can monitor, something that gives information about how our body is functioning. So the most common vital signs that we know about are heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, and our blood pressure. And so, you know, every woman who's listening right now knows that if you go to the doctor and either, you know, any of those vital signs are off, so if your blood pressure is too high or something like that, not only does it tell the doctor that there's something wrong, but it also provides a specific roadmap of where to look. Mm -hmm. So we know that if the blood pressure is too high, there's several conditions to kind of narrow it down of what it could be. And the menstrual cycle can be the same way. And what's interesting is when I say menstrual cycle, a lot of women think period. Right. (laughs) So it's kind of like we have a period and then, you know, fast forward and then we have another one and we don't really ask about what happens in between. So when I talk about the menstrual cycle, I mean the whole thing. And what we can do is break the menstrual cycle down into the different phases. So we have, you know, day one of the menstrual cycle would be day one of your period when you have true flow. Your period would, you know, last about three to seven days on average in a healthy cycle. And then, you know, you would enter into your pre-ovulatory phase. So, you know, as you approach ovulation, you would expect to produce cervical mucus, which we'll probably talk about. Some women might 
observe it as like creamy white hand lotion and others may observe it as like clear, stretchy, fluid, kind of like raw egg whites. But either way, you're producing this cervical fluid as you approach ovulation. In a healthy cycle, you would ovulate and then your period would come about 12 to 14 days later. So even just by describing the menstrual cycle, it's more than just your period. I mean, just looking at your period, you can get a lot of information about your health. Periods aren't supposed to be excessively heavy. They're not supposed to be ridiculously painful. If you're having a ton of clots, if you're bleeding, not just when you're supposed to be having your period throughout your cycle, all of those things can give us information. But similarly with any of the other signs, if you never have cervical fluid, if you always have cervical fluid, Mm -hmm. if you aren't ovulating at all, (laughs) if you're ovulating a lot later in the cycle, or if you're having really irregular cycles and ovulation is often you know, delayed and kind of at different times. And then the second half of the cycle, is it too short? You know, that could indicate progesterone deficiency. And so really, if you think about that, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of women who are listening now that are just like, wow, there seems like there's a lot to this beyond just the period. And if you think about it in those different phases of the cycle, you can really glean a lot of information about your health because it does reflect back in your cycle. Totally. And so when we talk about that normal healthy menstrual cycle and the normal healthy period, what are some things that we can do just very easily, very quickly throughout our cycle to know that it is normal or see signs that maybe it's not normal? What are the indicators just that are very obvious? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing to clarify is that when we're talking about the menstrual cycle, it's if you're cycling naturally. Mm -hmm. So if you are not on hormonal birth control and you are in fact ovulating and then having an actual period. So when you're on the pill and you're having bleeding, that's called withdrawal bleeding and it's not the same as your actual period. So in order to have a true period, you actually have to ovulate. Good clarification. Yes. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yes. Because as much as I've been doing this for almost, you know, two decades, still the myth that when you're on the pill, you're still having a period is very alive and well, very prevalent. Right. So one of the things that I find myself doing is really busting a lot of the myths that we have about the menstrual cycle. So one of the common myths is that the menstrual cycle is supposed to be 28 days, and that's the only expression of what a healthy cycle would look like. So it's helpful to know that a healthy menstrual cycle can range anywhere from about 24 to 35 days in length. And the average is usually about 29 days or so. But a lot of women think if their cycle is like 31 days or something like that, it's automatically a problem. So it is helpful to know that there's some variation. And with that, if the cycle can range, you know, between that 24 and 35 day range, it means that ovulation can also range. So in a healthy cycle, ovulation can happen, say, as early as about day 10 and as late as about day 23 or so. Just to give some context, because I think a lot of women automatically assume that ovulation always happens on day 14 or that it always should happen on day 14. Right, right. Okay. Well, and in addition to that, just to kind of break it down into just a little bit more information. In terms of the period, I think I mentioned that a healthy period should fall anywhere between about three to seven days. So there, I think we all have a sense that there's a such thing as too much bleeding. Mm-hmm. So if your period is regularly longer than seven days, if you're bleeding more than about 80 milliliters, so about more than about three to four ounces throughout the course of your whole period, that would meet the definition of menorrhagia, so too much bleeding. Also, if your periods are painful and you require medication to get through them. Although it's very common for women to have pain with periods, it's not normal. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to say that because as women, we've got really good pain tolerances. (laughs) 
<laughs> we can really hold our own because if you think about it, I often have to break it down this way for my clients. Even if, you know, well, you know, it's not that bad and I only have to take a couple of Advil. Just imagine, you know, your favorite male friend or male partner, if he was having that same degree of pain in his penis every month for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Very different. <laughs> Very different. Yeah. So for some reason, period pain is the only instance really when pain is thought to be completely okay and normal. And it's clearly not, we should not be having to turn to the pills every single month in order to get through the day. Yeah. I mean, pain is a sign of inflammation. And the research tells us that women who experience period pain do have higher levels of inflammation. So Mm -hmm. one of the markers of inflammation are prostaglandins. And we need prostaglandins. They're a group of lipids that help to trigger smooth muscle contractions, which is actually necessary in order for us to bleed and in order for us to expel the lining. But in women that have a lot of period pain, they've shown to have upwards of four times the level of Mm -hmm. prostaglandin. So first and foremost, pain, excessive pain is an indication of inflammation. But, you know, I think we both know that for many women, pain would be a sign of something potentially much more serious. So many women with endometriosis struggle with significant period pain. Right. And on average in the US, it takes about 12 years or so for the diagnosis. There was a study mm. that showed and in the UK about eight years. Oh my gosh. So anyways, I like to just talk about that because as women, why is it that our pain isn't taken seriously, right? Like this is completely ridiculous. It is extremely frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> now, should it be very obvious when you are ovulating? Should we all know as women that, oh, it's this day, I can tell I'm ovulating. Here are the signs. They're all there. Not necessarily. So, you know, about half or so of women may feel ovulation pain. So there's a word for it, Mittelschmerz. I probably said it wrong because I'm not German. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a word for that. So some women, women, it might be like a twinge in their side and it might rotate, you know, each cycle if they're ovulating on different sides. And other women may feel more like a prolonged dull ache. So it's not necessarily just the moment of ovulation. It could be approaching ovulation. You might feel a bit of a dull ache on one side or the other, and it might switch each cycle. But not all women feel that. But if you're tracking your cycles, there is a way to, I mean, when you're paying attention to your fertile signs, so specifically cervical mucus. So if you're you know, paying attention and every woman who's listening to this has gone to the bathroom today and probably will go to the bathroom a couple more times. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you could do is just to be more conscious. So you go to the bathroom and you wipe, but you pay attention. Like, does it feel lubricative? Does it feel dry? Look at the toilet paper. Is there anything there? Do you notice that there's certain times of your cycle where you actually see quote unquote discharge in your underwear? Look at it, you know, touch it, put it between your fingers. Like, does it stretch more at some times than others? So for any woman who is cycling naturally and who pays attention to these signs, particularly cervical mucus, initially you would be able to identify when you're fertile in your cycle. So I think one of the biggest myths about, especially for women who are trying to conceive, is that the goal is to have sex on ovulation day. Mm -hmm. But when you understand how the menstrual cycle works, our cervical fluid is actually magical. It's really cool. Cervical fluid is what keeps sperm alive for up to five days. So your fertile days in your cycle are actually the days that you produce this amazing cervical fluid. 
And an example that I often use is that for a woman who's, say, trying to get pregnant or just trying to understand her cycles, if you were to see your cervical mucus on Mondays, so you go to the bathroom and it's really slippery, and then you see this clear, stretchy stuff, whether it's on your underwear or your toilet paper or something like that, and then you have sex with your partner, so you have sex on the Monday, and then your partner goes away on a business trip to like Beijing or something, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) so he's gone, and you don't ovulate until Friday, you can get pregnant on Friday when you ovulate from the sex that you had on Monday because the sperm is still alive and hanging out in your cervix, in your cervical crypts, because that's why your mucus is so cool because it can actually keep the sperm alive for up to five days. So if you're just like some women will feel that ovulation tingle or dull ache, other women will not. But if you're paying attention to your cycles in a healthy ovulatory cycle, you would see signs of cervical mucus production. Not all women have like loads of the stretchy stuff, but for some women, they'll just notice that they do feel lubrication when they wipe. So it does feel slippery when they go to the bathroom. And then after you ovulate, it really abruptly dries up for a lot of women. So one of the ways to tell then when you've ovulated is when your mucus actually goes away. Hmm. Yeah, I really think tracking the cervical fluid and the changes that happen is very uh, fascinating. First of all, but also a lot easier almost than like the temperature method and these other things, which I know they all in combination would be the best route. But it seems to be a lot more obvious, at least for me, to track these changes in cervical fluid versus some of these other ways that you would know that you're ovulating. Mm-hmm. So I teach a version of the symptothermal method. And all that means is that you're tracking the physical signs that you would see, like the cervical mucus and cervical position changes, as well as the temperature. So mm-hmm. I think you make a really important point. For some women, the cervical mucus observations are so obvious and clear that really it's kind of like, well, yeah, this, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like super obvious. But not all women have the same experience. So there's a lot of different factors that can contribute to lowered mucus production. So for example, mm-hmm. for women who had been on the pill for a really long time, let's say 10, 15 years, which is pretty typical, you know, these days, that can impair mucus production. So some women may find that after they come off the pill, it takes a while for their mucus production to ramp up. So what's helpful about the three signs, it's kind of like a menu at a restaurant or something like that. So you have the option to track other signs if one sign isn't as clear and obvious. So for women who maybe aren't able to track or it's not as obvious for them or they're having a difficult time with the mucus, the temperature can be really helpful. So for anyone who isn't familiar with the temperature, basically if you take your temperature every day, first thing in the morning before you get out of bed, you're going to measure your resting metabolism. So after you've slept or been at rest for five hours, hours, your body kind of resets back to this resting level of metabolism. And what's really neat is that after you ovulate, you produce a significant amount of progesterone. So before ovulation, you're producing estrogen as you approach it. And then after ovulation, you're producing a significant amount of progesterone. And progesterone has a thermogenic effect on on the body. So it actually raises your metabolism makes you warmer. And you can actually measure it and plot it on a graph. So for a lot of women, the temperature is really great. It doesn't help to predict when ovulation is going to happen. So the cervical mucus is actually better for identifying when you're fertile, but the temperature really helps you to confirm that you have ovulated. So for women who are using the method for birth control, it's like sweet because after you've ovulated, you can't get pregnant for the rest of the cycle once you've confirmed it. And then for women who are trying to conceive, it's also great because it can help you to confirm that, okay, my window is closed for this cycle. I can stop trying. Right. And also it helps you to identify your due date. I mean, the most accurate way that you can at home 
without an ultrasound machine. Oh, that's cool. That's super cool. Now, do you notice a lot of women, because in my practice, I test hormones via saliva and I just noticed a lot that women who are seemingly quote unquote healthy are not ovulating at all. And they may even have bleeding that happens month to month, but they aren't actually ovulating. Is that something you see? Well, I would say that what I see is often there are times when a woman may have what you described, which would be anovulatory bleeding. But one of the things about doing, say, for instance, the strips and the testing is that we're often doing it at a certain time in the cycle. So, for example, if we we're, and most of us don't really realize it. So we typically still think in 28-day intervals. So for instance, if you were testing like the saliva strips around day 14, 15, 16, if you happen to be working with a woman who ovulates way later, or if she's struggling with some sort of hormonal issue that's really delaying her ovulation, some women don't ovulate until day 30, day 40. Mm-hmm. It's quite typical of PCOS cycles. So both things are possible. It's certainly possible to not ovulate and have what's called anovulatory bleeding. For some women, they'll experience that as lighter and a little bit different to their typical period. Other women may not be able to tell the difference. And then other women may have have something like that, but then go on to ovulate. So they may have a cycle where they do and they don't. But the good thing about just charting and even just having a conversation like we're having and becoming more aware of it is that there are ways to confirm that you have ovulated. So when you're looking at your mucus observations, when you're looking at your temperature, if you decide to throw the cervical position into the mix, you can actually go ahead and confirm if that bleeding is related to ovulation. So it's related to ovulation if the bleeding comes about 12 to 14 days after you've confirmed that temperature shift or after the mucus has dried up. And often women who are cycling naturally, so you may relate to this as well, when you are paying attention, there's often certain signs that you would observe in your body, in yourself, even in your moods that do not happen unless ovulation took place. Mm-hmm. So, Can I tell you that for me, I get hungry when I'm ovulating? Is that weird? I think I've heard that before. <laughs> I don't know why. It's every single month. It's like, man, I just ate and I'm hungry again. And it's always when I'm ovulating. I don't know what, what is with it, but I, I mean, I'm not going to deny it. I'm just going to eat more food. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's often a time of higher energy and things like that. Yeah, so. that's what I think it is. My body's working on something. <laughs> well, I know for myself, one of the ways that I, it's like a secondary sign. So in addition to all the signs that we talked about, for me, typically I'll notice that my breasts are a little bit more full and tender mm-hmm. post-ovulation, not to the point that they're actually painful, but just enough that I'll notice that. Right. So there's just a variety of different signs and you become more used to these things as you keep charting, but there's a variety of signs that you can pay attention to because I think what is most important in terms of the message of like, why would we call the menstrual cycle a vital sign is because there's really serious health consequences associated with not ovulating regularly for a reproductive age woman for a length of time. Yeah. I'd like to get into those. Let's talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so you gave an example of clients who you're testing their hormones and they're absolutely like not ovulating or whatever the case is is going on. And we have this idea in our culture that if you're not actively trying to have a baby, it kind of doesn't matter whether you're having a cycle or not. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. If a woman is, you know, experiencing amenorrhea, so let's say in a case of hypothalamic amenorrhea, so HA is associated with a combination of overexercise, undernutrition, and stress. So it's often in a case where a woman is not consuming enough food to offset her caloric expenditure 
on a day-to-day basis, or if she's experiencing a great deal of stress. But either case, these things are interfering with the conversation that should be happening between her, her brain and her ovaries, so her pituitary hypothalamic ovarian axis type of thing. And so what happens is, and one of the things I'll also mention is that this is something that we commonly are aware of for women who are really athletic. So we kind of know that like Olympic athletes or women who are involved in, you know, whether it's competitions or, but very athletic situations, often either their cycles will be disrupted or they may lose their cycles altogether. So having amenorrhea for an extended period of time increases your lifetime risk of osteoporosis. Because what happens when you're not ovulating and menstruating is that you actually start to rapidly lose bone mass. So regardless of whether you want to have children or not, it's important to recognize that having a healthy cycle is important for more than just your ability to procreate because I'm pretty sure that you want to have healthy bones and you don't want to have a diagnosis of osteoporosis at age 35. Right, right, absolutely. And so what do you see, what are some other common reasons why women's menstrual cycles get disrupted? You mentioned, you know, the under eating and the over exercising stress is probably the most common. I think you would agree with that, Mm -hmm. causing some disruption in those hormones. What else do you see? Well, I'll just take a minute to elaborate on the exercise part of it because there's a lot of women who exercise quite a bit and obviously don't necessarily identify as athletes. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important just to point out that it's really, really common. And it doesn't mean that like not all women completely lose their menstrual cycle. But some women will, you know, dial up the exercise and notice that instead of having about 12 to 14 days between their ovulation and their period, they might start having spotting or it might shorten a bit. And so it's something that I've seen a lot. I've worked with a lot of women who are even trying to conceive and they work out like five, six days a week, really heavy, and they really think nothing of it because it's one of the ways that they handle stress, not realizing that it can actually also be a source of stress. Right. (laughs) So just to put that out there, because there's a lot of women that fall into that category of they don't really identify as athletes, but they're literally like doing the heavy, heavy workouts. And if you're doing heavy, heavy workouts like that, you have to eat more. You have to actually consume more to offset that. But then, I mean, in addition to that, there's a lot of different health issues that can show up in the cycle. So for instance, women that have issues with their thyroid, so women who have under or overactive thyroid, it's more common to have the underactive thyroid. That can cause cycle disruptions from delayed ovulation to period issues like heavier periods or lighter periods or short luteal phase like lower progesterone levels. So I think it's helpful just to note that for many women, especially women who are taking their temperature, that for a lot of women would be the first kind of indication of like, whoa, why are my temperatures always so low? And that can kind of be one of the ways for myself when I was in my early 20s, my cycles were really, really long. And I would say I was going through my post high school feminist phase. I was discovering feminism, fertility awareness. And in my case, when I first started charting, my cycles were actually quite long. So you know, on average, they would be more like 38, 42 days. But I remember thinking that it was totally fine. I had read Taking Charge of Your Fertility and she had examples of long cycles. And I remember thinking like, ah, I'm Lisa. I've got long cycles. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Until my charting instructor looked at my chart and she was like, you know, Lisa, your cycles are too long and your temperatures are too low. I think you should be screened for thyroid. 
And so <laughs> in my case, my charts actually led me to discover a thyroid issue at a subclinical level. So this was before it had gotten to the, like I didn't have any real symptoms that I would be going to a doctor for. Like I wasn't lethargic, I wasn't overweight, I wasn't depressed, but it was identified at a really low level. So thyroid issues are something that can show up on the chart. In addition, women who have, say, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, so who kind of fall more on that PCOS spectrum. Mm-hmm. For many women, excessive carbohydrate, like unopposed carbohydrate consumption can really interfere with ovulation. And so there are women for whom when they are you know, somewhere on that spectrum and their bodies are basically, I like the way a friend of mine, Lily Nichols, puts it in her book, but basically like, what does she call it? Like intolerant to sugar. She says it better in her book, but basically your body doesn't respond well to carbohydrates basically. Right. And so in, in those cases, what's typical of a, a PCOS cycle is long irregular cycles. And so long meaning 35 days and over frequently. So having the occasional long cycle wouldn't necessarily give you a firm kind of diagnosis or anything, but more typical pattern would be more consistently. So women who are often having cycles that are over 35 days, maybe only having four, five, six cycles a year. So that would be one of the reasons where women may notice like cycle irregularities or having situations where they're really not having that many periods or they're having long stretches between periods. And again, when women have these symptoms, often what happens is they go to their healthcare providers and they're given the birth control pill. The birth control pill doesn't fix or cure anything. What it does, it essentially shuts down your ovarian hormone production. So it shuts off your natural cycles and it replaces it with a fake chemical cycle. So when you take the pill and you have your say 28 day pill pack, you know, you take your seven days of sugar pills or you, you know, have seven days off and then you have a bleed, but that's not your period. So everyone can feel better that you're bleeding every 28 days, but you haven't done anything to address the issue. Right. And the challenge is that women who fall into that spectrum, they have a higher lifetime risk of developing diabetes because obviously they have an issue (laughs) with the way that their body is processing carbohydrates, right? And often they're resistant to insulin. So their body's pumping out insulin to try to deal with the sugar in their bloodstream, but they're actually resistant to it. So the body has to pump out more. And all of these, the cycle of events basically interferes with normal ovulatory function. So I think with these examples that I'm sharing, the whole point to kind of bring it back would be that when you're seeing these cycle disruptions, it's an indication of an underlying issue, something that's actually going on in the background. So it's really important that we start to shift the way that we think about these issues and the way that we address them medically so that we're actually addressing the underlying issue instead of just trying to shove it under the rug, you know, with hormones, for example. Right. And just women being more in tune with their bodies to understand, okay, this isn't exactly normal here. Something has happened. Now I know kind of which ways to start looking, which ways to go, who to talk to, places to, you know, research, I guess, in order to see what's truly going on. And do you agree that stress is a huge one too? Absolutely. And stress is really interesting because often when we think of stress, we think of 
emotional, like emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so there's two kind of broad ways that stress can impact the cycle. So one is acute stress. So if you have a stressful event and it can affect the cycle differently depending on where you are. And stress doesn't have to be bad. So, you know, if you're going on a vacation, you get on a plane, all of a sudden your body's like 4,000 feet in the air, your body might perceive that as a stress, even if you are totally happy and content going on your vacation. Mm -hmm. And so if you experience an acute stressor or a stressful situation before ovulation, it's not uncommon for that to delay ovulation, say, for a couple of days. It doesn't always happen like that. It depends on, you know, when the stress happens, how your body responds to it and all those things, but it's quite common. And so for women, woman who's charting her cycle, she might notice that she's got all the signs that she's approaching ovulation. So she's, you know, looking for her mucus and she's seeing that she's got her cervical fluid, it's flowing, and then it'll kind of stop for a couple of days. So she'll think, okay, maybe I ovulated. And then it might come back several days later, and then she'll actually go into ovulation. So something we call that a double peak. But that can happen in times of stress. And similarly, if you have ovulated already, so you're in that two-week period basically between ovulation in your next period, if you experience a really significant stressor, for some women, they might find that it actually causes them to spot. So they might have a couple of days of light bleeding before their period actually starts. And for women who are tracking their cycles, they might find that their luteal phase, like that second half, is actually a bit shorter. So they might start their period a bit, like a a day or two sooner. So, I mean, that's how acute stress can affect the cycle. But chronic stress can also affect the cycle. So I've worked with a number of women, and I guess I should also say, when I say chronic stress, that can be a situation. So that could be, you know, your workplace or, you know, someone's sick in the family and you're really just not getting enough sleep and this goes on for a long time. But it could also be something like if you have a underlying infection that your body's fighting that you're not aware of. (laughs) It could be something like a gut problem that's just chronic inflammation somewhere. So there's other ways that other things other than emotional stress that could kind of be that chronic stress situation. And so I often refer to when I see patterns like this in my clients as kind of like a low hormone profile where you have an otherwise healthy woman that's just looks like her body's struggling. Maybe she's barely making any cervical mucus before ovulation. Maybe her luteal phase is consistently short or she's consistently spotting. And we've ruled out a lot of the other things like it's not her thyroid, you know, she doesn't have like, we, you know, you kind of go down the list and rule out everything else. And then you have to kind of start looking at chronic stressors as maybe a cause of it. So I think it's really kind of helpful and liberating for women when they're charting is that we talk about stress. It can be a very un- intangible thing. But when you chart and you actually can see on a piece of paper or on your, in your charting app, in your menstrual cycle, how stress can literally be affecting your body. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of women, it's kind of the first time that they it's legitimized. Right. So for many women, they find themselves maybe like, oh, whatever, the work situation kind of sucks or whatever. But when they start charting, they really start to see the effect it's having on their bodies. For many women, it's like, oh my gosh, maybe I actually need to think about a new career. Yeah. Huge eye opener. <laughs> it's bizarre because when I went into this field, that would have been the last thing I thought like, oh, you're just going to chart your cycles. You learn how to, you know, figure out when you're fertile and on and whatever. But like, I wouldn't have thought that it would be so profound for many women for them to be making kind of big life decisions based on how things are affecting their cycles. So we've talked about the fertility awareness method a lot. And it sounds like for you, you recommend all women start tracking their cycles, you know, based on these kind of things that we have recommended, you know, the cervical fluid, the temperature and changes in the position of the cervix 
for everyone. So all women should do this as just getting more information about their bodies. And then of course, it sounds to me like you probably definitely recommend this for those wanting a birth control method or as a fertility method. Well, I mean, I've been in this field for a long time. And so I've kind of like, you go through phases, like the first phase is like, oh my gosh, everyone needs to do this. Yeah. But I've, I've calmed down a bit. I mean, the way that I talk about it is that I do believe that every woman has the right to understand what we've talked about. So understanding meaning what has been termed body literacy. So all women have the right to learn about how the menstrual cycle works, how to identify when they're fertile in the cycle, and just to have that general understanding of like, I'm not fertile every day. This is what happens in my menstrual cycle. Like this is what happens when I'm fertile and all that. Yes. But in terms of actually charting and using it for a birth control method, I think it's quite obvious that every single woman is not going to gravitate to this method. And that's why we have so many different methods of birth control. Right. (laughs) And also there's some women who would gravitate to this method, but maybe not over the course of their entire reproductive life. So there's some women who would gravitate to fertility awareness at some points in, in her reproductive life versus others. So I think it's helpful just to note that. I mean, it would seem like I would be the perfect candidate to be like, everyone needs to do this, but I recognize that it's not right for everybody. But I do believe every woman has the right to understand how this all works. And then she has choices. So when we at least are told, like if we just were taught this in junior high school, which most of us obviously weren't. So if we were just advised of this and we knew that it was an option. So for the women who are listening, fertility awareness-based methods, there's a number of different ones. So if you're thinking about using this as a birth control method, it's helpful to do some research and to kind of choose a method that makes sense that has scientific research behind it. But for example, the symptothermal method, what we've been talking about today, there's research that shows it's, you know, as effective, if not more effective than the pill when used correctly. There was one study in particular that found a 99.4% effectiveness when the rules were followed, when the women were trained in a specific method by certified instructors. So they were actually following the rules correctly. And I think it's helpful for women to know that there are valid options. I've spoken to a number of women who were taking the pill and some women have a really negative experience on the pill right off the bat and get to the point that they actually can't use it because it affects them emotionally or physically or whatever the case is. But I've talked to a number of women who felt trapped because they kind of get to the point where they realize, okay, this is actually the pill that's causing me to feel anxious or depressed or lethargic or whatever the case is. But they're like, well, what else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so it's really helpful to know that you have that option because, you know, at the end of the day, like some women are going to choose, they're going to hear this and it's going to resonate and they're going to use this as their birth control because it just resonates with them. Some women are going to, you know, when they're ready to conceive, they're going to use this to help them to conceive. Other women are just you know, super excited and interested in how this could be a reflection of health. And so they'll use it as a way to track their health. But not every woman is going to want to use it as her primary birth control. And that's okay. And I think too, it, it's also just comes at different times for different people too. I mean, it may not be right right now. It might not be something that everyone's interested in, but then a year or two years, three years down the road, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that podcast. That really sounds like something that would work for me right now. And then it becomes an important tool at that stage of life too. So, but it is really important information and it can give you just so much valuable nuggets of information for you and your body and what your body's doing on a month to month basis. And you wrote an entire book about the menstrual cycle and it being the fifth vital sign. So tell us a little bit about what's in the book. 
Well, I mean, everything that we talked about today is in the book. So I, I talk about the fertility awareness method, the, the main fertile signs, what a healthy cycle looks like, what a healthy period looks like, what to do if you have painful periods. And I think it's helpful to mention that with this book, I didn't want it to be just another opinion piece, like take Lisa's word for it. So the book is heavily researched and cited to the tune of over a thousand research citations. So when I'm talking about information about supporting painful periods, for example, there's evidence to back it all up in terms of, you know what I mean? Like, cause I struggled with painful periods. It's just one of the examples from the book, but I struggled with painful periods for the majority of my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would look at these resources and they would just be like, oh, well, take this or oh, do that. And it, it didn't work. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I think it's really important to base you know, everything that you talk about in what is actually, you know, in alignment with what's showing in the, the latest research. In addition to those things, I have two chapters on the pill. So I really go deeply into the birth control pill, what the side effects are. And I think one of the most surprising things that I found as I wrote the book was how much research there actually is. Women have been talking about their experiences on the pill for years since it came out. But for some reason, that information doesn't always get into your doctor's office. So for women who have been on the pill, myself included, when I was given the prescription, I mean, I read the insert and everything, but I wasn't really given like a, and these are the side effects to look out for if you feel. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. And then what happens is a lot of women will have certain side effects and they won't know that it could even be connected to the pill. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's depression, anxiety, recurrent yeast infections, an increased risk of developing abnormal cervical cells, cervical dysplasia. I mean, we could go on, we won't, but we really could. Nutrient deficiencies, like it just low libido and painful sex, I think are really important to mention because a lot of women experience some of these symptoms and think that they're just going crazy mm-hmm. and go back to their physicians who then maybe put them on other medications. Right. That's what most commonly happens is what I see. And then they're on this whole list of medications all because of the first one they started with. Yeah. I mean, yeast infections are an example of that. I've spoken to a number of women who they went on the pill, all of a sudden they're getting yeast infections. The doctor's putting them on antifungals and then they get bacterial vaginosis. Yeah, (laughs) And then they're on the medication for BV and it's just going on and on. Eventually they get off the pill and it stops and it's like, well, geez. Or one of the studies that I looked at showed that teenage girls who are on the pill are at a much higher risk of being put on antidepressants. Since the pill is associated with depression, what often happens then is if these young women are depressed, instead of someone asking the question of, well, we know that there is, (laughs) in the research, we do know that there's a link between the pill and depression. So maybe before we kind of make any decisions here, let's just take her off for a couple of months to see if it gets better. Nope. <laughs> you know, put her on medication. <laughs> yeah. So my big thing about it isn't, I mean, I could come across also as very anti-pill because of course I have two chapters about the pill and I go into all the research, but my message, I always try to keep very clear. It's that as women, I believe that we, we need to know what these side effects are. So we have the right to know what the side effects are, what it could do to our body, because then it gives us a heads up. I think a lot of us would have done very well if we had just had a heads up. Mm-hmm. You might feel anxious, heads up. You could possibly have painful sex with this thing. And if it happens before you go to a psychiatrist, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Trying to deal with your early childhood issues, like maybe just try going off the pill for a couple months and see if it gets better. Like these are the things I think as women that we need to know. Because if we all knew about the side effects, I believe we would all fall into three categories. Like category one, 
some of us would be like, okay, no, this is too much. I'm not going to go on it. Some of us would be like, okay, I'm glad that I know the side effects. So I'm going to take it. And then if I have the side effects, I might modify my use. So Mm -hmm. I might not go on it as long or whatever. And then some of us would use it for just as long, but we still need to have the right to know, like, how are these things going to affect our bodies? And the right to make a choice. I feel like so many women go into the doctor and they're given that as like the only option. And it's just like, take this. There's no other way nothing else to say. You must take this. And there, you don't feel like there's a choice in the matter. Exactly. And it's the response kind of like the only responsible option really for yeah, exactly. a young woman. So it's helpful to know because again, it's not the fertility awareness is for everybody, but there are like literally hundreds of thousands of women right now using this method successfully for birth mm-hmm. control. It has science behind it. It's heavily researched. I think one of the comments I've had about the book is I have a chapter about cervical mucus and it's a long chapter and there's like a ton of information. There's like diagrams and I, people are, you know, let's just put it this way, like medical professionals read this book and they're just like, holy cow, like, Mm -hmm. why is this not taught in med school? Why is this, why wasn't I taught about this? So there's a lot to it. And I think it's helpful as women and very reassuring to know, like there is science behind it. This is not like someone drawing on a calendar and then handing it in. Like (laughs) 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 this is like legitimate option. And for those of us for whom either we don't want the pill, maybe we've tried the pill and it's not working for us, or we're just ready. Because I think a lot of us too are getting to the stage where we're eating organic food, we're going keto, I mean, right? We're doing all of these things for our health. We're trying everything. And then we're still taking this artificial hormone every day. Right. That's a big one. What I often say is like, when you eat vegetables that have been sprayed with pesticide, the pesticide wasn't designed to stop you from ovulating. Mm, that's so, that's <laughs> such a good point. <laughs> but the pill was. Yeah. So like for those of us who want other options, who are looking to preserve our hormonal health and kind of optimize our health. And for those of us who are actively trying to get pregnant, or maybe it's in the future, like maybe you want to get pregnant someday, or maybe you just want to be healthy. Like maybe you never want babies, but maybe you just want to be healthy. That's where the fertility awareness method comes in for many women because it's a legitimate option. It's effective. It does take a bit of work. You have to learn a specific method. You have to learn the rules. It's like learning to drive. Like you do have to give yourself, I recommend a minimum of three cycles if you're teaching yourself and then a minimum of one full cycle if you're learning with an instructor. So it's not to say that like you can just like grab a book and start it tomorrow, but for many women, women for whom this resonates, they jump right in and do it successfully. Yeah. And at minimum, it's just giving you this empowerment with your own female body. Yes. At minimum, just learning more about your body and taking charge of your body and your health, which is something we talk about in pretty much every episode here of the Keto for Women show. And that's what this is doing. And we just need more people like you spreading this message because I just think it's not really that widely known yet, in my opinion. I think there's still a lot of women who just have no idea that they could use these signs that their body is giving them every single month to learn more about their health, but also more about their fertility and even not have a baby in just that easy, right? It's just, yeah, it does take some practice and some learning, but we have all these tools. You have them all in this book. Your book, it's called The Fifth Vital Sign. I learned so much. It is the most thorough book I've ever read on like the menstrual cycle periods, female health. It is 
awesome. And it's entertaining too. It's not like this like textbook with all these, you know, all these studies and everything. It's really entertaining and it's written by a woman for a woman. It's just, it was incredible. I love it so much. So I really, really want all ladies to get the book because you just need to learn more about yourself and your body. That's all this is. And you did a great job helping us with that. So tell everyone where they can get the book, where they can find more about you, your podcast, all that stuff. Well, first of all, Sean, thank you so much. That is just a a wonderful thing. I'm I'm glad that you enjoyed it and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I like read it to cover to cover. You know, it was like my nightly read. It was great. But you just, when you learn stuff like, like I'm a forever student kind of person. And so I just love learning this kind of stuff. And when it's put into a way that is so easily digestible, it's just awesome. So congrats to you. Thank you so much. I mean, part of the reason I wrote it is because of exactly what you said. Although we have made a lot of inroads, periods are having their moment and a lot more women are talking about the menstrual cycle, but still, it just kills me that the average woman still doesn't know this. And really, it's because it's just not part of our education system. So this is intended to fill that gap. So the book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback, ebook, audiobook formats. As a podcaster, I actually underestimated how hard it would be to do an audiobook. I was like, that's going to be easy. Oh, yeah. I've heard nightmare (laughs) stories about that. But I was really excited when it was done. So happy about that. And for the listeners, you can actually read the first chapter for free over at thefifthvitalsignbook.com if you interest is peaked. And in terms of my podcast, my podcast is Fertility Friday. So in whatever podcast player you like, if you type Fertility Friday, I will be the first to come up. And there's over 250 episodes now. It's been a while of, of Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of recording. <laughs> Five years worth. So wow. it, it, was, it was steady, steady and slow progress. <laughs> yes. Good for you. That's awesome. Cool. And then are you on social media channels? Where can they find you there? Yes, I'm on Instagram at Fertility Friday. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fertility Fridays with an S. Twitter at Fertile Friday. I'm in the places. All the places. Yes, Fertility Friday. That's my name and fertility is my game. I had to do a silly pun. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> had to. Had to. We got it in. Gonna <laughs> <Can I> resist. <laughs> okay, great. And we'll have all that linked to in the show notes. So you'll be able to find that easily. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. That was awesome. And I think it gave a lot of women just some new ideas and maybe hopefully a feeling of this like empowerment that we want these women to feel. So I think we got there today. Well, thank you so much. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. 